0: Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. In Galilee, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. God, thank you so much for this morning, for our time to get together and worship. Um, thank you for your word that it brings truth into our lives and for your spirit that illuminates it, God. Uh, we thank you that um, the men can be worshiping together at their retreat this weekend. And we just ask your blessing on their, on their weekend. And we just ask your blessing on this morning in this room, this room here, that we can hear God with open ears. That you would speak to our hearts, Lord. That we'd be willing and open to hear what you have to say to us, um, just ask your blessing over John this morning, and thank you, Father, for who you are and for your love for us, for giving us your word, God, in your name, amen.
1: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and what a privilege to open God's word with you today as... We invite the Lord to reveal us, reveal him to himself to us. It's hard to talk. I speak for a living. But we are believing that. And as Sam said, we we desire that God would meet us this morning, that he would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would see him more clearly in order to find ourselves in and under him, the source of life. This morning, we turn to an intriguing passage of Scripture in John chapter 7, in which Jesus says one thing, but then seemingly does another. But upon closer examination, we discover that what Jesus does is not only faithful to his character as the Son of God, but also to his gospel, that he goes out of his way to proclaim. Contrasting in this passage and in this section of scripture, man-centered and therefore worldly religion that leads to death with true spirituality, what Jesus calls eternal life, defined as a right relationship with God that begins the moment we trust in Christ and then continues unfolding in beauty, glory, and majesty forever. Today, I want to remind you, actually, the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles will remind us that we not only enter eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we enjoy the fullness of that life in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're going to focus in on verses 1 to 13 this morning, though uh, we will dip into uh, some of the verses later in this chapter in order to help us understand what Jesus is doing here. And as we do, I want to invite you to gaze with me into the beauty of the gospel that Jesus announced, embodied, and invites us to enjoy more deeply every day and forever with Him. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So let's go to John chapter 7, verse 1. Let's review this passage we just read together. We read, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. But he would not go about in Judea where Jerusalem, the epicenter of Judaism, was because, John says, the Jews, specifically referring to the the Jewish elite, the self-proclaimed religious police of his day, they were seeking to kill Jesus. Because as we've seen in previous sections, Jesus was continually challenging their religious authority. Now, does this mean Jesus was afraid of these men? Was he afraid that they might somehow thwart God's plan or his messianic mission? No. Jesus didn't fear them. Instead, as we'll see later in this chapter, he exercised full control over them as he thwarted their lies by compelling the people to look to him, not to them, for salvation, specifically by crashing the Feast of Booths that John talks about in verse 2. Where we read, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now it's interesting, John doesn't call this the Jewish feast of booths or simply the feast of booths. But instead, right after saying that the Jews were trying to kill Jesus, he refers to this as their feast. Because it seems that this sacred feast instituted by God back in Leviticus chapter 23 to help Israel remember and celebrate God's provision for them in the desert as they wandered for 40 years under Moses, it seems that this sacred feast, this beautiful feast, had been co-opted by the religious elite who then reduced it to yet one more way of wielding religious control over the people. Now, in a moment, we'll see how Jesus pushes back. But first, in order to understand why he does so, we need a better understanding of what the Feast of Booths is, otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles. This was an eight-day celebration that took place in late fall after the final harvest, Five days after Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, which meant that all of Israel from the different nations had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Yom Kippur, and then they would celebrate the Feast of Booths, which was a a thanksgiving, a celebration for God's ongoing provision even as they looked back to the way God had provided for Israel in the desert as they wandered for 40 years with Moses. And during this this celebration, the people would dwell in booths or temporary shelters, just as Israel had done in the wilderness, thus the name Feast of Booths. Now you need to know that this feast was kicked off with great pomp and circumstance. On the very first day, the priest led a a great procession of people to the spring of Siloam where they dipped a large golden pitcher into the water. They filled this pitcher with cool, clear water. And then they marched back in this giant procession to the temple. And then the priest would pour out a portion of that water each day onto the altar in celebration of God's provision of water. For the Israelites in the desert, but especially, this was a metaphor for his salvation of his people. Now, on the last day, what was known as the Great Day at the Feast of Booths, the priests would circle, this great procession would circle the temple seven times, and then they'd pour this water out one last time, celebrating God's salvation, declaring likely Isaiah chapter 12, 3. With joy you shall draw water from the springs of salvation. Now, it was on this day, we read in uh, John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, on the last day, the great day of the feast, when Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, thereby identifying himself as the true meaning of the Feast of Booths and the true source of Yahweh's salvation. Now it's interesting, even fascinating, that Jesus does this since back in verse 3 of chapter 7, he was unwilling to join his family's public caravan to this feast, he would ultimately crash. Even though, in verse 3 of John 7, his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that is, to this feast with us, so that your disciples, referring here to the non-Galilean disciples, may see the works you are doing. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus' brothers, really his half-brothers, right? we read of Jesus' half-brothers and sisters in Matthew chapter 13, why are they half brothers? Cuz they got the same mom, but all of Jesus' brothers and sisters had Joseph as a father. But as we sang just a minute ago, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting that Jesus' brothers here in John chapter 7 verse 3 believed it seems that he could do miracles. Or at least others believed he could. Yet, as we read earlier in verse 5, they didn't believe he was the Messiah. Now, in their defense, can you imagine being the younger sibling of Jesus? How many of you have an older brother or sister that got to do all kinds of stuff you didn't get to do? A little bit of resentment, right? A little bit of bitterness, maybe. Now imagine having Jesus, the perfect kid, as your older brother. Always cleaned up his room, always came to dinner on time, never drank out of the milk carton. Mom and dad clearly liked him best of all because he's Jesus. Imagine what it would have been like to always be upstaged by your older brother. I wonder sometimes if that would have produced some resentment, a resentment that may have peaked as he now claimed to be God's promised Messiah. And so here, in verses 3 and 4, verses 3 to 5, they taunt their older brother out of unbelief, saying to him, Leave here and go to Judea with us, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly like the Messiah surely would, implying Jesus might be having second thoughts about his claims and or that he was now afraid to be seen in public. And so they say to him, If you do these things and thereby claim to be the Messiah here in Galilee, then you must show yourself to the world, Messiah, by coming with us to this feast where everybody who's anybody will be so that you can reveal yourself to the world as the Messiah you claim to be. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, little did they know that Jesus would attend this feast, but not on their terms but on his in a way that would allow him to demonstrate how this feast had become little more than a man-centered religious event that kept people from the God who instituted it to draw his people to himself, which explains his sharp response to his brothers as he insists that unlike himself, they're of this world, they're of this fallen world, they're not of God and his kingdom, saying to them in verses 6 through 8, My time, that is, my time to reveal myself as Messiah to the world as I inaugurate my kingdom through my death, burial, and resurrection, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world. Remember, John uses that word world to refer to all that is opposed to God and His kingdom. The world cannot hate you What's the implication? Because you are of this world. But it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil because they're focused on man, not God. Now, these words would have been tremendously offensive to his Jewish brothers because the Jews prided themselves at being of God and his kingdom, not of this world. Even so, Jesus says in verse 8, you go up to this feast, I am not going up to this feast. By which it becomes clear, he means I'm not going up with you right now in a predictable way that brings me attention and confrontation that will keep me from redirecting the focus of this feast back onto me where it belongs. For my time has not yet fully come. So we read in verses 9 to 13. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, but not publicly in the caravan, privately for his own purposes. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of Him who on the last great day of the feast would make it clear that to celebrate Yahweh's salvation, we must celebrate Him, the one who embodies Yahweh and is therefore the only source of eternal life. And of course, this is the heart of Jesus' teaching throughout His ministry, that he came to do for us what we could not and would not do for ourselves. Live the perfect life that we don't live, die a sacrificial death to pay the penalty for our sins, and then rise again to bring us a salvation we could never earn but only receive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the gospel Jesus went out of his way to announce, not only in John 7, but throughout his life. This is the gospel Jesus went out of his way to embody, the very gospel that his apostles would give their lives to affirm. And because that's true, I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning considering the beauty of the gospel as it applies to you and me today. Understanding that most of us in this room get that beginning a relationship with God and entering eternal life is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you don't yet understand that, I would love to talk to you about this. You can know for certainty that you are God's child, that your sins are forgiven, that you have eternal life in Christ. Please, come up afterwards. I would love to introduce you to Jesus. And then you can join us who know him in following Him into the fullness of life He's purchased for us. A life that sadly, I believe, many Christians are forfeiting because they think the gospel only applies to initial salvation. If that's you, if you're sitting here right now saying, well, wait a minute, I already believe the gospel. I've already trusted in Jesus for salvation. I don't need to hear a sermon on the gospel. If that's you, then you're making one of the greatest mistakes you could possibly make. Because in doing so, you will forfeit experiencing the fullness of life Jesus promises in John 10.10 10, when he says, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. And here's why I believe that. Here's why I say that. If you believe that the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone only applies to initial salvation, then you will be prone to believe the lie that the Christian life or living the Christian life is up to you. When Jesus says in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, if we could go back there, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And check this out. He uses present tense verbs. If anyone is thirsting for life, let him keep coming to me and keep drinking. And then he goes on to say, From his innermost being shall continually gush. Continually. It's an ongoing, continual gushing of life. As he abides in me. Reminding us that Jesus invites us not only to enter eternal life, but to increasingly and ever deeply deeply enjoy the fullness of eternal life. Right now, today, unfolding forever by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Yet how often do we as Christians follow the lie of the Jewish elite in Jesus' day and convince ourselves that while salvation is by grace through faith, the rest is up to me. I've got to grind this bad boy out, as if we're saved by grace, but sanctified by works. The Apostle Paul addresses the Galatians who believed this lie, and he addresses them fairly sharply, saying, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I'm going to have to turn around. Those words are just too small for me. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Here Paul amplifies what Jesus went out of his way to make clear in John 7 and elsewhere that he alone is the source not only of our initial salvation but of our ongoing sanctification and experience of eternal life in him. Which means this, we grow in Christ, we thrive in Christ, not by doing more and more but by surrendering more and more to him which Jesus calls abiding in him that we might increasingly enjoy the life that only He can produce in us. I wonder this morning, have you fallen prey to the lie that grace got you started in Christ, but the rest is up to you? Has anybody had an an inkling of that in their lives? It's a temptation, isn't it? It's a temptation from the pit of hell. Because it is a lie from the pit of hell. Because, you see, the truth according to Jesus is that neither entering eternal life nor growing in eternal life is fundamentally about what you do, but fundamentally about what Jesus has done and is doing in and through you as you abide in Him. Which, by the way, is the heart of Christian obedience as we see in John chapter 15. Verses 8 to 11. If we could go there, Kelsey. Are we there? Yep, thank you. Wow, I really can't see that. How, does, how do people read that back there? It's like four-point font or something. All right. Or maybe I'm just old. Wow, and I have a hard time walking. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide. Remain, stay close to, stay connected with me in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. Read this last part with me. And that your joy may be full. You see how he connects abiding with obedience. But we often get confused here because we begin to think of obedience in terms of performance. But how many of you know that obedience and performance are entirely different things? Performance says, I must do this or that in order to gain or keep God's favor. Christian obedience says, because God in his grace has already made me his because He guarantees He will keep me His, because He guarantees to conform me to the image of His Son. And all of those promises are irrevocable. My response to Him is joyful obedience as I enter into the life He has purchased for me by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So that obedience is my response that flows out of my understanding that it's not about what I do, but what Jesus has done. Now, How many of you know that God never calls us to perform? Do you know that? God never asks us to perform for Him, but He always calls us to obey Him. Understanding that obedience happens naturally as we abide in Christ through His Holy Spirit, who has united us to Jesus Christ in His perfect life, sacrificial death, Resurrection and ascension into glory, giving us the ability to abide in him and, get this, guaranteeing that we never again need to live under the twin fears of failure and rejection, nor under the crushing weight of condemnation or shame. Since our union with the righteous Christ not only guarantees that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven, but that because we are in Christ, His righteousness has been counted as ours before God the Father. Which means that if you belong to Jesus Christ today, if you are in Christ by grace through faith, God sees you just as He sees His Son. Now just pause for a moment. Think about that. Bask in that statement that can't be true, but it is. Think of this, that in your best moments, your worst moments, and in this very moment, if you belong to, God, to, to Jesus Christ, God sees you just as he saw his son at his baptism. You remember what the father said of his son as Jesus came out of the water in Matthew chapter 3? What does he say? Behold, this is my, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you realize that if you are in Christ, he says of you, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, not because of anything you have ever done or will do, but because of all and only that which Jesus has done and now is doing in you. Ponder this with me. Celebrate this with me. God sees you just as He sees Christ every moment of your life, even in the midst of your darkest sin. Why? Because that sin has been forgiven and replaced with the righteousness of Christ from God's perspective so that He sees you as His righteous adopted son or daughter, even in the midst of your ugliest sin. Now you say, does that mean sin doesn't matter? Of course sin matters. Our sin dishonors God and ruins us. Because when we sin in that moment, we are choosing something less than Jesus as ultimate. Which means that we're not abiding in Him who is the source of life. Which means we're choosing death in that moment. You see, this is why Jesus and the apostles call us continually to repent. Or turn from our sin to enter the forgiveness that is already ours in Christ as we stand up in His power over sin to continue following Him into the fullness of life He's purchased for us. This, my brothers, my sisters, is the gospel. And it truly is good news. This is the gospel Jesus went out of his way to proclaim. And the more you embrace this gospel, the more you will find yourself celebrating your weakness as Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where Jesus speaks to Paul first. Do we have that verse? Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, remember, this comes in the context of Paul asking uh, the Lord to remove whatever his thorn in the flesh is. We don't know what it is. I like that he didn't tell us what it is. That means I can, I can think it's whatever my thorn is was his, right? He asked him three times, help me rise above this, help this not to continually take me down, but what does Jesus say? My grace is sufficient for you. Check it out. My power is made perfect in your weakness. In other words, God is glorified most when we understand that we got nothing, that we bring nothing to this party, that all we have comes from him. Therefore, Paul's response, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. How un-American. I boast of what I don't have, of what I can't do, of how unimpressive I am so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you see this? Paul got it. He understood that eternal life, we enter eternal life and we grow in eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the good news of the gospel. The more you embrace this gospel, the less you will find yourself enslaved as uh, the the Jewish elite of Jesus' day were to extra-biblical rules and regulations. The less you'll feel compelled to compare yourself to others. The less you'll find yourself finding your identity and how disciplined you are, how faithfully you attend church, how your kids turn out, how you manage your finances or whatever other religious buttons we put on our chest and then try to find our identity in. The more you embrace this gospel, the more quickly you will rise from sin and abide in Christ, enjoying that living water Jesus promises will increasingly and continually gush from within you as you abide in Him. With all that said, as I wrap this up this morning, I wonder where this gospel finds you today. Maybe you have just failed in a colossal way. Maybe you have sinned in a way you never thought possible, and you're convinced you can never get back even to where you were, much less move forward in Christ. Have you ever felt that way? I know I have. Remember the gospel. The good news of the gospel that says that God has wrapped you in Christ's righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which means that Christ, not that sin, is your identity. And by the very same grace... God has enabled you by His Holy Spirit to rise above that sin, to put that sin behind you and to move forward with Him, not as a second-class citizen. That's what we do, right? Well, I guess I can repent of that sin, but I'll always kind of be in the back of the bus. No. None of us are second-class citizens because each of us is the beloved adopted son or daughter of God. God has granted you by His Spirit the ability to rise above that sin, put it behind you, and move forward with Him, not as a second-class citizen, but as His beloved child. Maybe you're here this morning and you're beset by certain sins. You just kind of see that cycle. I I feel this way sometimes. You ever feel this way? It's like, why do I keep on sinning in this way? Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's uh, pornography. Maybe it's, I, I don't know what it is. Right? Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's deceiving. I don't know. But we all kind of have our things, right? Maybe this morning you're sitting here saying, I just feel beset by these sins. I just keep on repeating them. I can't make any progress in the Christian life. And I really feel like a failure. Has anybody ever felt that or is it just me? Okay. All right. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate that. I'll take that smile as a yes. You just bought a horse. Yep. It's like that. If that's you this morning, you're feeling like a, a, a total failure in the Christian life, remember the gospel. The gospel that declares that you are a child of God clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which means you've got to stop slandering yourself. You've got to stop saying what's false and begin saying what is true, that you are a child of God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You need to stop focusing on your brokenness in order to gaze into the beauty and wholeness of Jesus Christ even as you celebrate the fact that God the Holy Spirit is working in you in spite of you. How many of you know that? That God is conforming you to the image of His Son even when you don't care. Oh, I love that this is true. All of which means he guarantees that you can and will grow up in Christ and one day stand perfected with him in glory. By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. There's much more I could say, but I'm more interested in what God is saying to you this morning. I wonder what God is stirring in your heart regarding the gospel. I'm going to pray for us this morning. And then we're going to have a time of communal prayer. And we're going to take some time in which we can just cry out to God together. Declare these truths to be what they are. Confess our lack of belief and press in to grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to lay hold of those rivers of living water, Jesus says, will continually gush from within us as we find our life in him. Father, we love you because you first loved us. We have absolutely nothing apart from you. We have no hope apart from you. And yet because of your grace toward us in Christ we have everything. We declare with the Apostle Paul that in Christ there is no condemnation. That for we who are his there is no condemnation. We are uncondemnable and uncondemned. We declare that you made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. We affirm with with great humility, celebrating your grace, that you have imputed Christ's righteousness to us so that we stand before you as your beloved righteous children, not based on anything we've ever done or will do, but only upon Jesus. God, would you give us the grace to lay hold of that truth this morning with the twin truth that you've given us the power by your Holy Spirit to abide in you, to press into this life you've purchased for us. That not one of us is a spiritual mutant. That all of us have everything we need by your spirit to drink deeply, continually, fully, to experience the gushing life you promise will come from us as we abide in you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We love you. Would you hear our prayers now, Lord, as we sit before you for a few minutes, as we cry out to you, Would you meet us and help us? Believe what is true. Believe this gospel and press into it for your glory and our best in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray together. Pray as God leads you. Pray out loud. Pray quietly. We're going to take a few minutes and you need to know I'm okay with silence. One of the greatest gifts of God's grace is this sacrament. This physical expression of a spiritual reality that our sustenance is in Christ, our spiritual food, our spiritual water is in Christ. This is why on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread that would represent his sinless life and wine that would represent his sacrificial death. And he invited his people to eat and drink to him. And theologians have debated for thousands of years over what actually happens in this sacrament. But what is clear is that Jesus established it for us to fellowship with him in a powerful, even mysterious way. And so as we take this bread and drink the cup this morning, We're saying to him, you are my sustenance, you are my life, you are my hope, you are my peace by grace alone, through faith alone in you, the Christ alone. Let's take the Lord's Supper together. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink and from his innermost being will continually gush Rivers of living water. Enjoy that reality. Live in that truth this week. We'll see you soon.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to Him and that you may continue.